A few years ago, I was shooting the breeze with two colleagues when a debate broke out. The topic was whether or not people were naturally generous. One of my colleagues believed most people were naturally generous. The other, however, was convinced most were not. What started this friendly debate was the fact that I was about to dig into data on our company's matching gifts program. This data was going to provide some insight into our associates' generosity because it reflected their personal giving of time and money into causes that they cared about. What I didn't know at the time is that this debate and the data I analyzed lured me down a rabbit hole I'm still exploring today. So before we go any further, what do you think? Are people naturally generous or not? And what about you? Do you believe you are more or less generous than the average person? Buckle up, because we're about to find out. Welcome to Generosity at Work, a podcast that explores the ways generosity is at work in our workplaces and how it's at work in the world. I'm Keith Jennings, a community impact executive with Jackson Healthcare. In episode one, we challenged the idea of giving back and we reoriented our thinking to the bigger idea of generosity. But we didn't accept some vague notion of generosity. We focused on responsible generosity. If you missed that episode, make sure you check it out. In this episode, we're going to explore the fascinating science of generosity, and we'll look at how it impacts our health and well-being. I hope you stick around, but more importantly, I hope you walk away from this episode with an understanding of how essential consistent behavior is when it comes to generosity and its long-term impacts. We started this episode with a debate two of my colleagues were having about whether or not most people were generous. When I looked at our company's matching gifts data, I discovered that only 12% of our associates were actually giving their personal time and money to community organizations. This got me curious about what data was out there on the generosity of Americans. Well, according to the World Giving Index, which is published by the Charities Aid Foundation, the United States ranks as the most charitable country in the world. So despite my initial skepticism, most people are likely generous, right? One of the most significant bodies of research I discovered was the University of Notre Dame's Science of Generosity Project. It was established in 2009 with a grant from the John Templeton Foundation and led by sociologist Christian Smith. Here are some of the surprising findings of Dr. Smith and the Notre Dame team. First, The more generous Americans are, the more happiness, health, and purpose they enjoy. Second, generosity practices create enhanced personal well-being. Third, the way Americans talk about generosity confirms these first two points that doing good is actually good for us. And finally, despite all of this, Americans fail to live generous lives. A 2023 report by Philanthropy Roundtable shared that while donations have increased sixfold over the last 60 years, giving as a proportion of the U.S.'s national production has remained at around 2% of gross domestic product. I'm not sure what to think about that, especially given that the U.S. is the most generous country. Survey data that Dr. Smith and team reported revealed that when asked for proof 
Only about 3 to 8% of Americans actually gave 10% or more of their income away in the last 12 months. However, when asked without having to share any proof, 20% said they give 10% or more. Only two out of every 10 people volunteered in the previous year, 11.5% gave blood, and one-third of Americans had not helped a neighbor with a job or watched a friend or neighbor's house while they were away or taking care of others' children. At the beginning of this episode, I asked you whether you thought you were more or less generous than the average American. So what did you tell yourself? Well, based on the research I've done, it seems the cognitive bias known as illusory superiority is in play for many of us. Illusory superiority bias is a condition in which people overestimate their own qualities, abilities, and achievements. During experiments in which groups are confidentially polled, the majority believe they are smarter than average, better looking than average, and even more generous than average. And this happens every time they do these experiments. There's a line in the book Lake Wabagon Days that reads where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. That's illusory superiority bias. Here's a confession. This research led me to face the stark reality that I've always thought of myself as a generous person, but my actual behavior didn't match the story I told myself. Let me ask you this. In the past 12 months, have you given money to a nonprofit organization? And if so, was it a one-time gift or an ongoing gift? What about volunteering? Have you volunteered in your community in the past 12 months? And was that a one-time event or was that ongoing volunteerism? Have you helped a neighbor or someone you know in the past 12 months? And what about people you don't know? Have you offered help or aid to a stranger recently? It's time you and I stop intending to be more generous and actually get to work. My journey into the science of generosity started nearly a decade ago when I read research on what's known as the giver's high. The neurochemical drivers of happiness are dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Now, you you may have read some stuff on this over the years, but dopamine is connected to our arousal and motivation. Serotonin is connected to our sleep, appetite, digestion, memory, and learning. And oxytocin is connected to everything from bonding and empathy to lower blood pressure and anti-inflammatory benefits. Behaviors such as giving to others and helping others activates all three of these neurochemical drivers. Scientists call this the happiness trifecta. What you and I experience when we engage in generous acts is a physiological boost and a reduction in the effects of stress. But the research reveals that not all acts of generosity are equal in their positive impacts on our health and well-being. We're going to dive into that right after this quick break. This program is made possible by Jackson Healthcare, a family of highly specialized staffing, search, and technology companies. Headquartered in Metro Atlanta, we're powered by more than 2,600 associates and over 20,000 clinician providers covering all 50 U.S. states. Recognized year after year as a great place to work, our mission is to improve the delivery of patient care and the lives of everyone we touch. We're always looking for bright professionals who have a drive to serve others, grow professionally, and do the wise thing. That's you. Check us out at jacksonhealthcare.com. 
In their research, Dr. Smith and the Notre Dame team researched the relationship between specific forms of generosity and five measures of human well-being. These five measures of well-being that they studied were happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. The specific forms of generosity they correlated to these well-being outcomes were one, voluntary financial giving, two, volunteering, three, relational generosity, which they defined as how attentive and emotionally we uh, invested we are in our relationships with others. Four, neighborly generosity, which focuses on hospitality, friendliness, and other neighborly-like expressions of care. And five, they studied the effects of other activities like giving blood, uh, being an organ donor, lending personal possessions to others, and giving through uh, things like estate planning. I was surprised to learn that some generous behaviors have little impact. Activities like giving blood, signing up to be an organ donor, uh, lending people your stuff, uh, or giving through estate planning, as important, good, and worthy as they are, but they have no statistically significant association with our happiness and well-being. Only a specific type of giving, volunteering, relationship, and neighborliness actually benefit us. There's a reason for this, and that reason is the core theme of this episode. So what is it? The Notre Dame team discovered that the difference lies in understanding the distinction between generosity practices and events. A practice is something that's repeated. An event is a one-time occurrence. For you and I to reap the physical, emotional, and relational benefits of generosity, we must make generosity an ongoing practice, not a one-time event. Think about it. Think about the difference between spending a few minutes with a youth in foster care and offering a few words of encouragement and advice versus meeting with that young person once a month over a year and seeing their growth and resilience. Signing up to be an organ donor is a generous act, but it's a one-time event. It's not a regular practice like volunteering two hours a month at a local community organization. So in order for generosity to positively affect your happiness, health, sense of purpose, levels of depression, and your personal growth, you and I need to be consistently generous. We need to make at least one specific form of generosity a regular practice that we repeat over time. Check out these statistics from Notre Dame's Science of Generosity Project. Americans who give away 10% of their income are healthier and happier than those who do not. Those who volunteered regularly in the previous year are 13% more likely to be in excellent or very good health than those who did not. Americans who regularly practice some form of generosity enjoy a greater sense of purpose in life, while those who don't report higher levels of lack of purpose. And about 10% of people's happiness appears to be shaped by things such as income security, marital status, religion, things like that. However, 40% of the difference in how happy or unhappy people are is determined by the intentional practices in which they engage. Here are nine interrelated causal mechanisms Dr. Smith and team correlated 
with increases in well-being. One, generosity fosters positive emotions and reduces negative emotions. Two, generosity triggers the happiness trifecta we talked about earlier, increasing pleasure, reducing stress, and suppressing pain. Three, generosity increases our belief in our ability to act and our power to make things happen in the world. Four, generosity creates positive social roles and self-identities for us to live out. Five, generosity reduces self-concern, self-absorption, and self-obsession, helping us focus our attention and energy on others. Six, generosity reinforces a perception of living among a world of abundance and blessing. Seven, generosity expands the breadth and depth of our social network and relationships. Eight, Generosity promotes increased learning about the world. And nine, generosity increases our physical activity. All nine of these causal mechanisms lead to greater happiness and health. But they have positive impacts in our workplace too. Did you know generosity is associated with reduced job burnout? And did you know there are strong correlations between generosity and success? I could go on and on. Uh, with these findings, these insights that, are, that have been published and that I've come across. But I don't want to bore you. What I do want to do is encourage you and equip you. Happiness, health, purpose, personal growth, these are things success and money simply can't buy. So we need to be more generous and we need to know that this requires us to be responsible and consistent, which leads us to the question. How can we make generosity a regular, ongoing practice? Well, the answer is pretty simple. We need to make it a habit, and we need to be intentional with how we do this. In a Harvard Business Review article titled Beat Generosity Burnout, authors Adam Grant and Reb Rebell share an experiment in which people were asked to perform five random acts of kindness every week for six weeks. One group was directed to perform one act a day over five days. They were known as the sprinklers. The second group was directed to pick one day a week and perform all five acts. They were called the chunkers. Half of the participants in this experiment experienced a happiness trifecta boost that lasted over the entire study. The other half experienced no boost in mood or energy at all. So I'm curious, what do you think? Which approach do you think led to that sustained mood boost? Was it the sprinklers doing a daily act over five days or the chunkers doing five acts in one day? Drum roll. Only the chunkers reported a sustained happiness boost. We have a saying at Jackson Healthcare that goes, others first doesn't mean others only. And that appears to be what happened with the chunkers. Performing many acts of generosity in a single day not only increased their perceived impact on others, it created a a balanced sense of accomplishment by freeing up their other days to make progress on their projects and other work commitments. At Jackson Healthcare, I've experimented with a few approaches to activating our associates' generosity uh, as a regular practice. But what I've discovered is that my early attempts uh, to activate more generosity failed uh, because I didn't understand the science of generosity uh, I'm sharing in this podcast. 
As I've become more educated on our hardwiring as human beings, I've been more successful helping our associates help others while reaping the benefits of generosity. At the beginning of this year, a colleague introduced me to a local nonprofit called The Sandwich Project. Formed in Atlanta during the pandemic, The Sandwich Project is a network of neighbors who deliver sandwiches to food insecure children, homebound elderly, local shelters, and others in need. I invited our company teams to pick a regularly scheduled meeting and dedicate 20 to 30 minutes of that meeting to make a few sandwiches for our food insecure neighbors. Our technology group was the first to respond, making 86 sandwiches uh, that we delivered. Uh, And then our benefits team followed with 100 sandwiches. And by midsummer, we had 100% corporate team participation and two of our associate network groups hosted sandwich making events. As of this recording, we've donated over 2,000 sandwiches and we're just getting started. I was so proud the Sandwich Project delivered their one millionth sandwich this summer, uh, which is a major milestone at a time of uh, chronic food insecurity throughout Metro Atlanta. In this episode, we've looked at the science of generosity and the many positive ways in which generosity affects our overall well-being. The key is consistency. For our generosity efforts to make an impact in the world as well as our workplace, we must make it a regular practice. Focus on something you can batch and do consistently, like making sandwiches for food insecure neighbors uh, during team meetings. When you do this, you'll start to see the happiness trifecta take hold of your colleagues. They'll want to do more generous things for others. And some will start to question their careers. Why make sales calls or sit in meetings all day or update spreadsheets when you could be making a difference in the world? Maybe your true calling is working for a nonprofit organization. Well, don't quit your day job yet, my friend. In episode three, we're going to look at the connection between generosity and our sense of meaning and purpose with our work. You're not going to believe what I discovered. Generosity at Work is produced by Jackson Healthcare's Love Lifts Community Impact Platform. This podcast is a free resource for professionals and leaders seeking to go beyond profit and be a force for good in their communities. Learn more about Jackson Healthcare and its community impact work at jacksonhealthcare.com. 